the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, true of violence without force This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machine to Conscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Also, just want to give a shout out to uh, Sigmund Freud. Before we introduce today's guest, we do want to mention we've got a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a dollar a month there. But if not, you know, we could use a couple of reviews on iTunes to push some down. So, you know, maybe consider helping us out there. Today, Taylor and I are very proud to bring you a returning guest, Eugene Holland. Eugene is Professor Emeritus of the Department of Comparative Studies at The Ohio State University and whose books include Baudelaire and Schizoanalysis, The Sociopoetics of Modernism, Deleuze and Guattari's Anti-Oedipus, Introduction to Schizoanalysis, Nomad Citizenship, Free Market Communism, and Slow Motion Strike, as well as A Reader's Guide to A Thousand Plateaus. But we're so thrilled to have you back, Eugene. As Taylor said in the pre-show, you were someone that just stood out to us as having just uh, just a really good, friendly vibe and we enjoyed speaking with you so much that uh you know we're really excited to have you back on the show so welcome glad to be back very glad to be back just for us i know that in your conference paper you mentioned perversions of the market it seems like it's it's imminently forthcoming is that is that true well i expect it to be out this year the <laughs> publication process is uh you know a little bit opaque yep. standing outside of it but i i would hope 2023 i don't think there's any reason for it to go into 2024 so and suny press is, is um has contracted to publish it so that's where to look we're glad that we got the sneak peek and got to talk yeah. to you about that last time and so hopefully if there's any substantial changes that come to mind you can let us know during the, the course of the talk Last time we had you on, we had you tell the origin story. Do you want to add another layer to your origin story? or Because uh, it was so rich last time. And um, maybe there's another anecdote you can give us that didn't come to you last time. I don't remember what I said about my origin last time. I have a memory like a sieve, so... Uh... <laughs> I don't recall that. But it's true, as uh, as Cooper's notes uh, say, that, that the literature department at UC San Diego in those days, before the center of gravity of theory moved up the coast from UC San Diego to UC Irvine, meant that we had Lyotard and Baudrillard and mm. De Certeau coming on a fairly regular basis. And, and in, in fact, De Certeau received an appointment there. Oh, so wow. That was one of the things that was an unexpected boon for uh, for flipping coasts and going out to UC San Diego. That's someone whom I haven't read probably in over a decade. I, I feel like he's, because there's so many big names, he's kind of, I don't want to say fallen to the wayside, but I, I haven't really seen a lot of literature on him lately. But it's kind of, I one of the key ideas I remember was kind of, you know, there's questions about surveillance of space, but this, he brought to mind this question of time as 
as a part of this dynamic in in terms of of surveillance and and capture but there obviously there's a lot of other things you know that i have to keep him back in mind uh in case you know we ever need material to go into well but, hey that but, that sounded interesting what's what's that in just out of curiosity i'm not i don't remember if it was the it's uh, not the actually, different end right no, no, no. This is okay, gotcha. this is De Soto. Uh, actually, oh, okay. Eugene, you might be able to tell us a little bit about your encounters with him because this has been again. I have a memory like a sieve too. So, um, well, encounters with whom? Because we're talking about at least um, three different people. And <laughs> Jean Joseph Gu was also uh, at mm. UC San Diego, and his book on was translated as Symbolic Economies. Mm. It was very helpful Ooh, in negotiating anti Oedipus, for one thing. I think in the practice of everyday life, Dusserteau kind of talks about this monitoring of time. You know, we yes. usually think of surveillance in terms of space, but him bringing this other dynamic that I think a lot of times gets left out. Again, this is something that I'd have to revisit. So, but yeah, I mean, that's, I assume, and didn't you say you, you began kind of studying literature and it and it just so happened that you were also interested in, in these other things or was there... Always well, my undergraduate, yeah. my undergraduate degree was a dual degree in philosophy and literature. I've always been interested in philosophy, and that's one of the reasons I chose UC San Diego, because they were doing all the great continental, well, French continental philosophers, but also the Germans. I mean, Marcuse mm -hmm. was there, and so we read Reason and Revolution and so on, and a lot of his works. So, no, I've always been interested in philosophy, and I just, I guess I chose literature because I felt there was more freedom to do things than in most departments of philosophy in this yes. country. Although obviously there are exceptions, including Duquesne and mm -hmm. Stony Brook and so on. There, I mean, there, there are exceptions, but it narrowed the range of possibilities too drastically for me. So um, I, I was able to pursue those parallel interests at UC San Diego. This book on perversions of the market is a return to literature in a way, because most of the work I've done, or at least most of the work I've published since, has been in more in political philosophy. It was nice to sort of bring things full circle a little bit and get back into literature, which which the Critique and Clinique project enabled me to do, because even though Deleuze doesn't talk about diagnostic work in his study of Saad and Mazak, that's what I do. I plug it back into the into the critique and clinique project so that we can see how these works of literature by Sada Mazak are not diagnosing psychological proclivities of individuals, but in fact parts of the capitalist social formation, yeah. parts of the culture of capitalism. I do think that that's that's a good point and is is very helpful because I know that you know you when you were reviewing certain thinkers i'm trying to remember you talked about him in a few of your books was his name brown he talks about separation anxiety and these other things i remember that you're always worried about the tendency perhaps to for example in um, male fantasies right with uh theolite's book you know you worry about how some of these analyses for example of like fascism might tend towards a psychologization, right. whereas we always need to historicize, you know, as like right. a good Deleuzean or whatnot, we need to historicize, we need to think of these things collectively. And so your reading of Sodom and Soak is it's great to see how you can apply this structurally rather than merely individually, which right. would then limit the brunt of the critique. Yes, and in fact, the irony is that Norman O'Brown's work, Life Against Death, is trying to psychologize everything. 
And yet, as long as you sort of reverse it again and historicize it, which I do with the deferred action notion from Freud, shout yes. out to Freud again. <laughs> uh, yeah. Then I can I can salvage Norman O. Brown's excellent work for, <laughs> for the project. And uh, of course, he was also on the California coast. He was at UC Santa Cruz, where I did some of my okay. work. So yeah. very important <clears throat> figure, even though I had to I had to take issue with him. Yeah. On that. One of our guests, uh, Daniel Tut, wrote a book on psychoanalysis in the family, and he leaned quite a bit on on Brown's work. So mm-hmm. that's interesting to hear you bring that up, just as a side note. I don't know if you even well, remember that either, Taylor. No, but but what I, I'm sorry, Eugene. What, what did you take issue with uh, with Brown over? Was the psychologization of? Yeah, exactly. I right. Mean, he is explicitly trying to psychologize what the Marxists have explained in terms of crises of overproduction and so on, tendency of the profit rate to fall, required right. growth, all that he's trying to repsychologize. And there's an interesting um, book by Ernst Becker called Escape from Evil which does some of the same work from a vaguely psychoanalytic perspective. It's something that, uh, it's in some ways anti-Oedipus light, if you will. It's mm-hmm. a very, uh, more anthropological account of how the death instinct gets repressed and therefore push us in the direction of constant growth or constant expansion. Interesting. Right. So symbolic exchange type yeah. logic. Interesting. And I also think that rereading the apparatus of capture plateau, which I think for our purposes is is going to be very salient when we get into some of the work you've shared with us today. What I thought was interesting where they they come back to someone like Pierre Claster, who mm-hmm. is so fundamental for anti-Oedipus for that big chapter yes. on anthropology, where they kind of critique the notion that one of the things they critique in Claster, which, you know, it's nice that they can even lightly critique their influences and their their friends, so to speak, is the fact that one of the tendencies of ethnology is to resist an encounter with archaeology as though they kind of want to remain insular in their own discourse mm-hmm. and want to resist any sort of historical evidence that might counter their what they call ideal formations it is kind of interesting to think about how that is a type of if you will psychologization or typologization of these formations and maybe part of that too that critique of Claster then is a is a self critique of what they were doing in Antiedipus right that maybe the chapter 3 didn't have enough archaeological you know information and so a thousand plateaus has kind of a a course correction to a, a several course corrections one yes. can imagine and in, another way to think about it is an enrichment to go back to a lot more sources than just Clastre to talk yeah. about the way the statesman and the warrior interacted, for example. I think there's a lot of that going on. Mm-hmm. And the example you brought up earlier, where they replace capital as socius with the market surface and capital as an apparatus of capture, I think of it as as much as an enrichment as, as a course correction, although there may be some course correction going on there in mm-hmm. there as well. It's just expanding so much of their earlier stuff that they, I mean, they covered so much ground in the first book that they, there's room for them to fill in, to put flesh on the bones, so to speak. And that's one of the places they do it. I do think that that's important. And in any case, Coop, do you want to, you want to finish with the, before we, we, we <laughs> dig deep into, uh, into your work, Eugene, there's maybe something, go ahead, Coop, I'll let you, this is oh, your, yeah. your, your question. So you don't necessarily have to answer, answer this, but. I didn't figure this out until after you had come on 
last time. Okay. Because the next week, Andrew Culp happened to be our guest, and I just right. happened to look through Andrew's book. I think it was like Dark Deluxe or something, and right. it, or no, it's another book, and it had a you were somewhere in the acknowledgments, and I was like, of course, you two would have known one another, and so he let it slip that you had spent some time studying under Leotar, and as a tremendous fan of libidinal economy, mm-hmm. I like I like to use Guattari's sort of joking statement about the interpretation of dreams being a great work of literature in contrast to Proust's <laughs> In Search of Lost Time being a schizoanalytic monograph. So I jokingly say that libidinal economy is a great achievement in literature. So mm-hmm. <laughs> with all that said, I don't know if you have an anecdote or you know even something to just say about libidinal economy. And again, I don't feel obligated. I can cut this out if there's... If there's I, don't, um, I don't have an anecdote about the book itself. It's great to have Leotard there. Um, he was an extraordinarily sparkling intelligence that really turned on a lot of conversations at the time. But I was so desperately trying to work my way through Anti-Oedipus that yeah. I thought, well, like, one really difficult book is going <laughs> yeah. to be all I can handle at that stage. Fair yeah, enough. I mean, libidinal economy provides its own difficulties and yes. they don't necessarily coincide. Uh, but, you know... Yeah. He has that really nice essay on on Antiedipus that got inflicted yes. in the Accelerate volume. Right, yeah, yeah. We uh, looked at that. What is it? Energumen capitalism yeah, yeah. or That's something like that. Right. So, I mean, you know, it's and Leotar shows up in Antiedipus where they they both kind of praise him, but also critique him at the same time, right, for, you know, the first generalized critique of the signifier on the one hand, so I guess I would say, you know, I do think one thing I would like to do before we introduce and go into the topic more, which is about the question or the role of of axiomatics and the and what they call the axiomatic uh, mm-hmm. specifically, which even if it's uh, used, I think it's at least referenced in Antiedipus, but it's not made explicit until what really the 13th plateau where they they kind of delve into it and give it more body as a concept. I wanted to suggest that you've kind of been on this trajectory investigating the axiomatic in terms of what Deleuze and Guattari mobilizes, talking about the world market as an axiomatic or capitalism as an axiomatic. You've at least, not just in your your reader's guides for Anti-Oedipus and A Thousand Plateaus, but specifically I'm thinking in your book on nomad citizenship, you've kind of been wrestling with this topic. Do you feel like this is something that's kind of been on the horizon of your work for a long time and now it's just merely foregrounded? How do you, how do you feel about that? Well, I think it has been on my agenda for a long time. As I've said a, f- a few times, the first page of Difference and Repetition lays out these two enemies of difference, mm-hmm. quantity and, well, equivalence and substitution. And that kernel, I think, is a sort of a through line through Antiedipus, well, for me anyway, through Antiedipus chapter three, and, and then into A Thousand Plateaus, where it's mostly the apparatus of capture plateau, but it appears elsewhere too. And that's one of the things that I point out in my in my conference talk last week, is that what had been specific to the capitalist economy in the first volume becomes a feature of the state form, mm-hmm. science, and politics in more general way in the second volume. Right. And that's, I think, very important because I was just rereading Paul Patton's excellent, excellent chapter on colonization in his Deleuze and the Political, where he talks a lot about and explains 
very, very clearly how the apparatus of capture works for ground rent as well as for profit. And um, he also, something that I had forgotten, emphasizes how important legal axioms are, the capture of territory and its transformation into private property and land. So yeah, I, the axiom, axiomatics has been key for me. And in a way, it was John Roth's work that really opened it up for me in a completely new way. Dan Smith invited us to a conference over at Purdue, and I had read the Abstract Market Theory book and some of John's essays, but that was really, for me, a kind of a moment of explosion for rethinking what axiomatics meant and, and could be. I really like that you hit upon this point, which can, can escape us, right, that the very first page Deleuze lays out. The two enemies of difference of repetition is resemblance on the one hand, equivalence on the other, and yeah. how they can't be confused with those two. So resemblance would be the kind of domain of, of codes more generally, right. which is pre-capitalist formations, including the overcoding of the state. Mm -hmm. Whereas with, with the capitalist axiomatic, it's working directly with decoded flows, quantities. I'm trying to remember exactly how they they kind of say it, but you know, axiomatics, they kind of operate on elements and relations that don't need to be specified. It's merely kind of a functional application, right. uh, has no concern for qualities, right? So we're really kind of in the realm of the differential, if you will. It doesn't matter about the content. It's merely just a, a kind of a formal quantitative right. yes. uh, application. And so what you have is, is an element of even mathematical set theory or, or axiomatic theory, which mm -hmm. is that you have axioms which are abstract mm -hmm. and can be filled with different content and therefore produce different models. That's all in mathematics. And then when you have a market which is oriented towards the appropriation of surplus value rather than the exchange of goods itself, you have, again, an abstract machine or an abstract structure mm -hmm. whose content is immaterial. It's the difference between mm -hmm. flows that ends up in the pocket of the capitalist. It's extraordinary how useful that theory for mathematics is, although we have to understand that they're using it in a, in a significantly different way. And that's what John Roth's work has, has enabled us to see. You put it in a nice way where for John Roth, he's kind of saying, if we want, we have to say that their use of axiomatic is metaphorical, which they say it's not. And, right. and I think we don't want to go down that road, or we have to qualify it and disallow intensive multiplicity. Because set theory and axiomatic set theory in particular isn't concerned with intensive multiplicities. It's merely extended multiplicities, right. as, you, as you point out. And I think maybe before going deeper into how you defend their use of it, because I think your defense is the right one, which I'll get to in a second. But do you want to say a little bit about how you kind of parse this distinction? Because I think it's very important between extended multiplicities and intensive multiplicities. For me, that enables us to think of the market in as having two forms, extended form mm -hmm. and an intensive form, where it's a virtual space, it's a virtual plane. It's tricky because one of the things about, well, Bertrand Russell already explains how intensive quantities yep. can be translated into extensive quantities. So going back to his work was a way of uh, sort of sidestepping their leaning on Blanchet so much and talking about the difference between these two, I don't know, the two forms that the market takes, uh, intensive extended. So the thing about intensive multiplicities is that at least on 
on Deleuze and Guattari's view, as I understand it, it replaces the rule-governed belonging to sets with what I call existential belonging, which yes. they characterize as the and. They say what's crucial to a non-enumeral set, which is an intensive multiplicity, is that the and that links the elements is unspecified. So it's akin to another mathematician that I draw on, Riemann, to say that in its intensive form, the market is a Riemannian space. It's a patchwork of things that have heterogeneous standards and yeah. are joined on a in a completely, I wouldn't say arbitrary way, but a non-rule-governed way. So, so there again, you've put your finger on one of the distinctions that John Roth points to between intensive and extended multiplicities that enable me to model the market in a way that I think does justice both to its reality, that is to say, the market links together coffee grown in somewhere else to what I'm drinking now, also does justice to the market in its, I don't want to call it metaphorical, but it's in its virtual space where, yes. where capital surveys what is possible and says, okay, I'm going to invest there, I'm going to place an axiom there, or I'm going to withdraw one from here because it's not doing the work I need it to do in order to generate differential profit. So that distinction between intensive and extensive is key. I like to yeah. think of the intensive side, and I'm assuming this is right, would be like, I mean, obviously prices are intensive because they're sort of a, a wave function you know, at least assumed to be correlative to demand for whatever good is being transacted or exchanged on the market. Right. And then extended there, would be the actual commodities, the actual okay, production and, good, and consumption. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, good. And, well, and, hey, there it is. <laughs> That's kind of what I, mean, I wanted to get to. I mean, one, one of the things that you bring out and that, and that John himself brings out is that before for example, you know, you take sort of an abstract ideal situation before production, before the creation of factories to create some product or service, et cetera. All of this planning goes in and all this this research, which includes flows of technology, information, et cetera, et cetera. Right. All of this is done sort of intensively in a virtual space before any sort of production begins. Right. So this is kind of the the two aspects of the market, which I also think you bring out as in terms of the axiomatic of capitalism, which the main axiom being production for the market, I think is kind of just how they say it rather than in terms of a local sense of producing for consumption. Right, uh, right. You know, it's, it's producing for surplus value, exactly. the extraction of surplus value. Right. I think that you give the great example basically of if the axiomatic of capitalism is is sort of like that virtual space, then the, the models of realization can take on heterogeneous forms, even if they're mostly isomorphic, which the main, even if there are other institutions that are models of realization, the main form it takes is what we think of as the modern nation state. Yes, they talk about their notion of models of realization, they see this pretty quickly, I think centers on the nation state, but they also consider sectors of the economy having their own model of realization. And yes. they talk about different colonial practices as having different models. So it's not just the nation state is, I think, the, the sort of the, the easiest one to glom onto because you have, you know, you have communist China, which mm -hmm. is also linked to the same world market that, you know, capitalist United States. The nation state is the, is the primary one, but they actually say that the models of realization can be realized at different scales. Let's put it yeah. that way. I think that that's good to 
capture the the sort of virtual actual distinction yeah. you know yeah. just as just as you mentioned that in mathematics you know you can have an axiomatic that's the more general virtual side and then you can have various different models that draws upon the axiomatic that can sort of actualize them in in practice right, right. And, and i really like the essay you cite is it mary beth mader yes uh, i think so yeah who wrote about you know how there is a tendency, for example, with someone like uh, Manuel Delanda being the most typical, but, you know, he's his work is very illuminating, but he perhaps stresses too much how Deleuze takes his idea of intensity straight from the sciences, whereas she's kind of pointing out that Deleuze's notion of intensity is very much so that intensity never kind of reveals itself in a certain phenomenal way. It's right. always right. kind of canceled out in extensity. Yes. Exactly. In qualities, yeah. if you will, it really is in the underlying the, the sort of differential play, but it's not itself what is sort of actualized. And it's always perhaps expressed wrongly when thought in, for example, you brought up Russell with Russell. He's kind of saying how you can take an intensive or even a non-metric idea like right. like distance and do some axiomatic modifications and make it metric or extensive. Right, right. But in a certain sense, you're losing something because, you know, 10 feet high on top of a, a house versus five feet high is not necessarily twice as dangerous or twice as scary. Right. There's something lost in the, I would say, lived experience of that, of that feeling, if you will. But there's- And Mary Beth's essay was key for me to going back to Russell and sort of sidestepping the Blanchet. Not yeah. that there's anything wrong with Blanchet, but Bertrand Russell does this so clearly and makes it clear that there are two axioms, homogenization and comparability, yeah. that enable that transformation from the intensive to the extended. Her essay was very, was very helpful for that. And I think that perhaps why we're trying to, for, just to like make sure that the audience is going along with us, but you know, I think that what's important to get to with this translation, if you will, this making comparable of the intensive by making it extensive is it'll become important when we get to talk about their definition of minorities, I think, because for them, what comes down, and this is why I think axiomatic set theory, they draw upon in their own way is important because they're going to specify minorities which I'm anticipating a little bit, as non-denumerable sets. I think that in the sense in which axiomatics, by treating flows sort of in an unspecified way and merely quantitatively indifferently, mm -hmm. their axiomatic is always wanting to treat denumerable sets. And so I would ask you, is there a kind of analogy or a correspondence between this notion of non-metric, intensive, and non-denumerable in a certain sense. Yes, definitely. Okay. Definitely. And um, that's, I think, one reason that the author whose essay I read for uh, Continental Philosophy Review goes back to the Kant and the thing in itself. Kant says we can't know that, but we have to have a representation of that in order to be able to develop knowledge and so forth. In a sort of similar way, what Deleuze and Guattari are saying about non-enumerable sets is that, and Paul Patton says this as well in his essay, in his chapter, that the creativity is always happening outside and before the axiomatic, before the axiomatic gloms onto it. And this is so clear in most retail marketing that, you know, the this is an apparatus of capture. Someone yeah. will invent a, a genre or a style of clothing, whatever it is. And if it reaches a certain number of likes on some social media, <laughs> it 
captured and commodified. So yeah, that that um, non-enumerable sets, minority problematics. Yes. Uh, the way that Dan Smith contrasts problematics with axiomatics and mathematics in his collection of essays, those are all correlated distinctions. This is really helpful. And so I, what I will suggest going back to, you know, you point out along with, you know, John Rofe, that they draw upon axiomatic set theory in a way that doesn't necessarily correspond with how mathematicians use it, specifically right. with the notion of power, because for axiomatics, axiomatic set theory, power is merely about, let's just say, the size of, right. of sets, whereas right. they want to use power in obviously drawing upon, I mean, when they use the word puissance, they have a whole lineage to draw upon yes. Nietzsche, Spinoza, et cetera, that, exactly. that sort of contrasts it with pouvoir. I know you've talked about this as puissance being power with versus pouvoir being kind of a power over. Exactly. You know? And so what I would suggest is you kind of are able to, you're able to navigate these objections by saying, first of all, we don't want to discard in sense of multiplicities because that's going to ruin the whole analysis. Yes. But mm -hmm. if we also want to keep axiomatics in their usage and, and stress that it's not just a metaphor, we have to suggest that they're making a philosophical concept of axiomatics and not merely importing a mathematical concept. And I think yeah. that that's beautiful because it really, first of all, it stresses that philosophy is concept creation, but second of all, you're able to salvage their analysis without without then having to get rid of that whole plateau, so to speak, or most or of call it. it. Or call it metaphorical. Yeah. That's exactly right. And um, I think that, um, how to say this, in what is philosophy, they say, they, this is where they talk most about philosophy as concept construction. And for me, this goes back to an earlier study I did of Wittgenstein. And there's a, despite Deleuze's rather brusque dismissal of, uh, <laughs> yeah. of common language theory in Wittgenstein, there's a lot of similarity with the way they think about philosophy and, and concepts. Mm -hmm. So when Wittgenstein talks about family resemblances as being key to the way concepts work, you can think of variation in, in the way Deleuze and Guattari talk about concepts working. Right. And in this case, this is a perfect instance where if you're going to use a concept like mathematics, excuse me, of, of axiomatics from mathematics, you choose which elements are going to be productive and which elements need to be screened out. I think this is the way they describe concept form or concept creation working in what is philosophy. And I've just sort of read it back into what they were doing in A Thousand Plateaus without perhaps being as, as explicit about it as they later were. And I do think it's interesting this is just an aside first before addressing, going back to the main thing. I do love, I think it's one of the shortest letters in the Abbasidaire, right? W for Wittgenstein, where he basically, <laughs> he calls him the assassin of philosophy. And I always imagine that kind of like conservatives decry the invasion of French theory in the humanities in America, which is something you've probably heard for the past 30 years oh, yeah. or or so. I wonder if there was an analogous but reverse influx of analytic philosophy into French universities, and perhaps Deleuze was decrying the stultifying effects of a kind of banal importation of 
maybe some of the worst aspects of analytic philosophy. But I'm not I'm not sure, I, and I'm not necessarily trying to defend Deleuze's attack or defend Wittgenstein. But I've always wondered if it was something like this, where it's maybe a local politics thing. I do know that there is a strain of analytic philosophy in French philosophy departments. I don't know the history of it, whether it was on the rise or whatever, or whether. Yeah. Deleuze was actually reacting to it. But I can understand Deleuze's objection to a cursory understanding of common language theory or everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because, you know, he's against communication, uh, he's against conversation. For him, if you read his works, you know this, the construction of concepts is a very painstaking and exhausting, if not exhaustive, enterprise. But nonetheless, despite that complete incompatibility on that count, when you get down to look at the way they think concepts actually work, I think that they're very, very similar. And I always thought that even if Deleuze might reject language games on certain points, in the philosophical investigations, when Wittgenstein is talking about how language primarily functions as command, as being obeyed, not necessarily as conveying a meaning, right. I think he's very close to the postulates on linguistics where they talk about order words. I've forgotten that Wittgenstein also says that. That's another point of, uh, of, of similarity, yeah. So it could be, too, that sometimes, kind of like when uh, Deleuze and Badu, or they're sometimes maybe too close, they're so close they have that, that friction I think perhaps there's certain things now, obviously, they might disagree uh, and, and diverge on many other things. But I always was struck by the fact that Wittgenstein is not talking about language as informational or communicational. But when he kind of uses the primary function of language as about issuing commands and about getting things done, I was like, well, that's pretty close to, uh, to Deleuze and Guattari. In any case, that was an aside. I do want to say... One of the things that I thought was great that you bring out in their use of axiomatic as a philosophical concept rather than a mathematical one is now power is not about not about size, because to a certain extent, that's not quite the important thing, especially when we consider minorities and majorities. It has nothing to do with size in terms of the size of the sets. And to the same extent, I think that they are very clear, even in anti-Oedipus, that when we talk about molar molecular, we're not talking about a size difference. Right. You point out very helpfully, I think, that power, as they lay it out, when they just talk about the power of the axiomatic and the sets within, or what Masumi sometimes calls aggregates, which I think does a little bit of a disservice, you know, just because I think A Thousand Pleasures is, tra is translated beautifully. But when they say set in that in that plateau, they're thinking about axiomatics. So to talk about the aggregates of minorities sometimes may obscure the meaning, but mm -hmm. in terms of power, you gloss this as a question of a mode of belonging. Do you want to say maybe a word or two about that, if you can? Because I thought that that was very kind of powerful to describe for example, like the becomings of, of minorities or their resistance to being axiomatized, this question of a, of a mode of belonging was helpful. Well, this is what John Ruff points out is not compatible with mathematical theory. A mode of belonging that is what I call existential. Mm, it's yes. a matter of fact that this set of heterogeneous elements are, for some reason, glommed together as an assemblage. And this then translates into they're deploying non-enumerable sets versus denumerable sets. 
So a non-enumerable set would be a set of elements that belong together because they are together. There's no rule that governs their being together. And what um, what the capitalist axiomatic has to do is to translate these non-denumerable sets into denumerable sets in order to quantify and eventually extract surplus value from them. One of the ways I think about this is the difference between a citizen and a member of civil society. In principle, all citizens are equal before the law. Right. So they've been homogenized. Their differences have been erased. They are all one citizen, one citizen, one citizen. So this is a denumerable set, which the legal axiomatic of liberal democracies, let's say, imposes on a welter of differences among civilians or members of civil society, some of whom are rich, some are poor, some are men or women, dot, 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 dot. All kinds of differences get effaced. And the same is true of marketing axioms, which try to suppress any number of differences so that a group of people will all purchase the same product. Their marketing campaigns have to figure out, well, what anxieties do all these people have, even if they differ in all these other different ways? Right. So, um, as you said earlier, the analysis, the use of axiomatics to analyze capitalism stands or falls on whether or not one accepts the notion of an intensive multiplicity, intensive magnitude, and the being together of a non-denumerable set. And yeah. what, what is interesting is that they suggest that capitalism is constantly producing these non-denumerable sets or enabling them somehow, producing them may be too strong, but enabling them providing a way for people all around the world who have no other connection to unite as fans of heavy metal, let's say. Uh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, so you have a, a non-enumerable set, which forms because of social media, the internet, whatever ways it forms, because of concerts, tours, right? Which then the tour organizers and other capitalists will try to axiomatize to make into a market. And they largely succeed. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't probably wouldn't have heard of heavy metal. This distinction is key in maintaining the, the viability of using non-metric quantities, non-enumerable sets in an analysis that's based on axiomatics is where I think their creative use of philosophy has really borne fruit. Seeing this potential in Bertrand Russell and Blanchet's book on axiomatics and so on, and taking it back to the distinction between naming and counting that Deleuze identifies on the first page of difference and repetition. Those are my terms, not his, but uh, the, the two enemies of difference. I think that that's good. Non-denurable then could be, you know, if you think about what, in French, it's even closer. In, in English, we have name and number, but in French, you know, nom and nombre, they sound so much the same. So, you know, non-nameable, non-numberable comes right. off much closer to a Francophone ear. And I think that, the, that you're right. There's something about naming, which is a kind of determinatio, right? You know, it's a yeah. kind of determination, same as numbering, which I think before, you know, about an hour, hour before you came on, Cooper and I were talking because <laughs> a lot of the time we get into reflecting on Dune. And I think that they even bring up Dune in uh, A Thousand yeah, Plateaus, they do. right? The, yeah, the, and the nomadology, I believe. And, the no and uh, Children you know, of Dune. It's about walking without rhythm, right? Uh, I believe, you know. Yeah, yeah. You walk without rhythm to avoid attracting the predator sandworms of Arrakis, etc. And yeah, and, and I was, and, and Coop brought up, because I'd forgotten that one of the discussions, one of the interesting things about Dune is the question of the yeah, inhabitants, the, yeah. the, the inhabitants of Arrakis, the Fremen, 
are hard to count. There's this question of counting their actual numbers. And so I know that in your axiomatics essay, you bring up this question about the numbered number and the numbering number. And there, right. is, this, and there is this question about in non-denumerability, you know, counting, I'm even thinking of like Badu, count as one, which is what the state of the situation sort of imposes and performs. There's a sense in which the axiomatic is concerned with being able to count out multiplicities in order to make them metric, make them yes. uh, denumerable, make them extensive, mm-hmm. uh, extended, and thereby to kind of fix their their essence for, we could say, for the market or even for, in a certain sense, I mean, the way that Deleuze and Guattari talk about it elsewhere, in a certain sense, this is also the kind of the function of the majoritarian, whether it be faciality or whatnot, there is a sense in which that which can't be immediately counted by univocally in an exclusive disjunction is threatening to whether it be the security of the state or even my own fear encountering a stranger, being able to to see at a glance, you know, white or if not white, how not white, you know, man, woman, et cetera, anything that falls out of these binary, bi-univocal exclusive disjunctions, anything that's non-denumerable, non-nameable, non-countable is threatening. And I think that that's very different from what, you know, they, for example, prize in what they call primitive territorial machines, quote unquote, right? The polyvocality of the body where the face is not yet like as a transcendent concrete machine, like concretized, etc. So I'm just thinking about these things, maybe expanding a little bit on the plateaus, but I think that that's important for perhaps what the axiomatics, one of the things the axiomatic is, is always concerned with trying to reappropriate and recapture are these non-denumerable sets that that aggregate and, and coalesce outside of the great conjugation of flows that the axiomatic yeah. is concerned with. This is where I, uh, in some ways, where I started with the the way they talk about the difference between connections of flows mm-hmm. and conjugations of flows that are axiom-governed. Yes. The, uh, the connection of flows is non-enumerable. It's minoritarian. It's axiomatic it's, it's in the sense that it just comes about. The question that I have not answered is whether these are a threat to the capitalist axiomatic or whether it's just, in a way, from their perspective, a missed opportunity. And I would like to think that there's certainly a missed opportunity. If there's yes. a non-numerable set that doesn't get turned into a market by capital, it's a missed opportunity. But if it's a threat, that's something entirely different. And I would mm-hmm. like to think that uh, that non-numerable sets or minorities could represent a threat. Um, and having been introduced to capitalism and schizophrenia by working through the first volume first, that's where my thinking started. But when I read and then reread Thousand Plateaus, and in particular in wrestling with the climate crisis, and in a response from William Conley to my work, I realized that I had to take seriously the idea that they say that unless minorities reshuffle the axioms of the axiomatic, they really haven't achieved anything in terms of a political advance. Mm-hmm. I'm paraphrasing rather crudely, but they do say, and I wish I had the quote because they say it so much more concisely, but if, if a minority doesn't um, have a return impact, have an impact on the axiomatic, then it's not really doing much political work. 
And then, so that was sort of stage two of my thought. First thought was very anarchistic. It's all about minority movements. Let's just free the lines of flight. Let's hope that they intersect. But uh, the, I mean, that's that's in some ways the way volume one reads or read to me. But then looking through Thousand Plateaus several times, there was the passage where they insist that the struggle over the axiomatic is viable politics, right yeah. there's something, and that minority movements don't have a political payoff unless they reshuffle the axioms. That's yeah. right. Two, three, what if they were to produce a new axiomatic? Yeah. And that's yep. the work that I've been doing most recently that goes beyond what I said in Nomad Citizenship, which is the sort of the utopian volume, whereas the perversions of the market book that's forthcoming is the critical right. on, capital, on capitalist axiomatic. So step three of that was to think, what would a post-capitalist axiomatic look like? And so this is admittedly much less anarchistic than my first take <laughs> on these things. I mean, and it's had several influences, among them finding that that one place in Thousand Plateaus where they talk about the possibility of a new axiomatic, yes. but also in light of the political situation surrounding climate crisis denial and so forth. And it doesn't seem to me that there's any way of avoiding trying to reshuffle the axiomatic in light of climate change. Even short of producing a new axiomatic, which is what I envisage, yeah. I think the importance of <clears throat> reshuffling the existing axiomatic is is something that's come to the fore for me. And in an exchange at Duquesne the other day, I described the project as utopia light, which I actually <laughs> don't like. But it's a it's it's a short-term utopia. It's an utopia that's looking at what is possible right now in terms of, of adjusting the capitalist axiomatic to adjusting, well, reforming the capitalist, I think it's reformist, to better address the climate crisis. And carbon tax is one example. Uh, EPA regulations against pollution is another example of axiomatics being used, against, legal axiomatics being used against the capitalist axiomatic. And I've just read recently in, in researching this a little bit more that the United Kingdom has granted rights to sentient beings including lobsters. Panama has actually gone so far as to grant nature rights. I take their critique of human rights, the Dulles and Guattari's critique of human rights in what is philosophy with a grain of salt. And I think what they're really, and if you read their colorful language, I think I get the sense that what they're really objecting to is how human rights have been subordinated to private property rights of capital. And yeah. so when I talk in my in my Duquesne paper about flipping the relation of different kinds of axioms, I may be going too far afield here, but it would assert a variety of rights over private property rights of capital in order to move the existing axiomatics away from the domination of the profit motive. And so this presumes that the state is viewed as a battleground not just the tool of the ruling class. And I think that that's when they talk about the struggle over the axioms of being legitimate politics, again, my crude paraphrase, not their language, and talk about a new axiomatic. This is the way I began to think about the problem of axiomatics and how particularly the legal axiomatic could be used against capitalism. I think this is great. You addressed a lot of great points. I do want to get back to what we talked about earlier, which is, and, and one of the things you just brought up, which is your suggestion about differentiating different types of axiomatics or yes. axioms. And so I want to get to that soon because you anticipated that and that's great. And I love that you bring out that they do say sort of at the end of the minority subsection towards the end of that 
plateau, right? That it's precisely by struggling within the axiomatic around certain axioms that there can be this gap produced between what they call propositions of flow, which yes. I take to be in terms of like the quanta, the ungraspable, unappropriable right. quanta of flows, the non-denumeral flows that are that come forth from these struggles versus the propositions of axiomatic, which always wants to be that stopping point, that that blockage point and that capture point. And so I think it's good to say that yes, there is, there needs to be, and there are political consequences for the struggle of over axioms within capitalism, which they say always comes across very modestly, mm -hmm. at least as first, but you, yeah. you see that what the axiomatic kind of struggles with is the ability to, to solve those problems posed. And this is why when you brought up the threat earlier, I want to get back to this, what is threatening? They don't say threat here, but in a different language. And I think it's important because it brings up this other distinction that we, uh, that we see in specifically the nomadology plateau preceding this, you know, major science versus minor science, where they say, however modest the demand, the struggle over the axioms is an index of, a, of another combat that goes on at the same time when people demand to form, oh, and he say, it's yes. this struggle always constitutes a point that the axiomatic cannot tolerate, which I think being intolerable might be considered a threat. So they say when people demand to formulate their problems themselves and yes. determine at least the particular conditions under which they can receive a more general solution. And without having to go into problematics versus theorematics, et cetera, I think it is important that this is a theme throughout Deleuze's work, this question of determining problems for oneself is really key in like Deleuze and, or in difference of repetition where this is the real model of learning versus an abstract model of knowledge or the abstract knowledge of say like a scholastic test where yeah. we're meant to regurgitate mm -hmm. facts or things already problems already pre-given when we are able to take on the the right and also the what kind of the the dare to know thing where we're we're proposing problems that we don't already have the solution to i think that's key that's always been key i think for for Deleuze. yes right because concept creation happens when you're forced to rethink something by a problem that's you right. run into something not only that's intolerable on the ground, but you don't have conceptual means to address adequately. And so you're forced to think. That's yes. one of the themes from the difference repetition. Yep. You're forced to think and retool concepts so that hopefully they, they produce, enable you to experiment with different solutions. Yes. That. The experimentation is key. And they even say that even axiomatics in the sciences, for example, they, it kind of gropes around and there is a, a trial and error type thing. But the freedom to do that, which problematics, as they call it, or forming problems for ourselves, the freedom to grope around ourselves instead of having the problems, let's say, supplied by the axiomatic or the, the market, right. whatever, which could devolve into different forms of consumerism. You've analyzed this in terms of, of Saad and Musok, which mm -hmm. uh, is helpful too, which you know, that's not going to, it's not going to save us, right? And but so, you know, there's an interesting point here is that we have this kind of experimentation going on on the ground, so to speak, but it also is what capital does on its side of the market. I think somewhere as a probe head, it's seeking out 
experimentally low psi of surplus value extraction, and it often fails, right? It, mm. it constantly works by breaking down, they say. As any number of economists and, and, and philosophers of mathematics have pointed out, these you can't guarantee return on investment. It's a shot in the dark, if you will. Although, as you said, there's a kind of there's an entire research apparatus that tries to cushion the risk. But capital is also formulating its own problems above that is then going to impose on the market through investments and disinvestments. And so I, I like that there's from the struggle within concerning axioms, then perhaps, as they say, there could be this new axiomatic beyond the capitalist one. And I do think that they give on the previous page, which I was talking to Coop about earlier, they give an example of a quote unquote different axiomatic. They don't say the word new axiomatic, but a different one, which would be what they call in the context of the next page, which is what we're talking about, a tautological reversal, because they say there could be, we can imagine a different axiomatic where the minority is reversed, where the white European adult able-bodied, heteronormative male is no longer the majoritarian standard. But flipping, reversing, you know, as they say, there's there's no, and this is kind of what I was talking with Coop, there's a the tendency, the reactionary and quasi-fascist tendency to post, to posit that each ethnicity should have their own state, like yeah. ethnostates. That would just multiply majoritarian standards, standards but, yes. but it would keep them under the same axiomatic Right. right. So it doesn't really all that kind of solves is uh, is what I don't know. A local uh, political conflict, a, a local political conflict of my racism, whatever, yeah. you know, and, and wanting to segregate. And I think that a new axiomatic would have to consider. I think it would definitely have to. This is why they say it's it's not enough to just multiply majoritarians that the new axiomatic, I think, would imply becomings, right? Because they say, woman, we we all have to become that male or female, non-white. We all have to become that, you know, white, black, yellow. So if we are going to to salvage minoritarian becomings and not just multiply majoritarian standards and segregate them off, I think that would be part and parcel of this investigation of a new axiomatic, which is what you have have tried to, to write about. And I think that that introduces us to what you've discussed. That's an interesting conundrum because one of the key things I've uh, learned, I think, from Dodos Bateri is how important it is to retain a market or markets in the plural. I've uh, described this two-volume project, Nomad Citizenship and Provisions of the Market, as an attempt to distinguish capitalist markets from markets in general. And here, of course, John Roth's book on abstract market theory was key. But the reason I am convinced that it's important to retain markets is because they represent power with they don't represent anything. They are the basis of power with, or they are a basis of power with that enables differences to sort themselves out in a way that, if it's not a capitalist market, is beneficial to both or all parties. So that's a key way of maintaining difference, power with, but not unrelated difference, right? It's not lines of flight, which in the second volume they recognize can fly off into the void. It's related difference. But then on the other hand, the market axioms, which are no longer capitalist axioms, but they're market axioms, are, on my view, have to, on my view, be subordinated to legal axioms 
The technological axioms, I think, can stay more or less where they are. I distinguish among economic axioms, legal axioms, and and technological or scientific axioms in going beyond what they say about the various axioms, different models of realization. But you have market axioms, you have technological axioms, which stay more or less as they are. But now the legal axioms, I argue, have to take a position of predominance over the market axioms. That's the revolution that does away with capitalism or or subordinates it to something else. Those axioms, however, are axioms and they therefore numerate. This is something I haven't, I've, I've recognized without having in any sense solved. But legal axioms must treat or would have to treat all species as the same as worth being preserved, right? So all kinds of differences get washed out. And I think that that's one of the, could I say, problematic areas of using axioms in this way, legal axioms this way, is that they're going to homogenize inevitably. Yeah. uh, I was thinking about this with money too. Like if we're keeping markets, we have to have some, you know, I guess one of the necessary aspects of markets is some type of a signal, something that's got to signify a value of some kind right. or like an input Definitely. output of, of some kind and like how does how does that work because it's the general equivalency that kind of enables capitalism too so i don't know it's a yes. very tough dialectical stalemate or double bind to break out of well it's interesting there are those uh, some marxists among them who believe that monetary exchange inevitably produces capitalism i don't think that's right that's not what they say either. I mean, Deleuze and Guattari, that, that's no, not there. Not Deleuze and Guattari are not among them, but uh, but um, that's one problem. I, I stand on the side that markets have functioned perfectly well, well, perfectly well, have functioned without capitalism right. for millennia. But the other interesting thing is that states, now we're going back to, to uh, the ancient Mediterranean, states stamped their standardization on money, Right. Right. This is one of the things that Jean-Joseph Gu's work is really good about, but he's not only one among many, who've recognized that a monetary exchange could be conducted without the stamp of the state. But yes. for thousands of years, it's the state has controlled the value of money. Well, in her very important book, The Code of Capital, Katharina Pister has a chapter talking about cryptocurrency. Nice. Excellent. Cryptocurrency would enable uh, – would provide a platform for market exchange right. which w- isn't controlled by the state. Exactly. Now, she's um, agnostic about whether that's possible, whether the state will allow this to escape. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so <laughs> forth and so on. But it's interesting to think that along the lines of whether of what role and what form money will take on a non-capitalist market, that a non-state currency is one of the candidates. And that opens up, a, I think, yeah. a whole range of possibilities, which... I'm certainly not equipped to, to judge, and which it may be too soon to to evaluate yeah, true. fully. I mean, this is something that I'm just fascinated with. The other day I came across – I apologize. I don't have a, a citation, but I came across a very interesting post, and it was kind of talking about – and I don't remember the specifics of it, but it was either something about there's an inherent feature within the blockchain or cryptocurrency that sort of follows the same logic of like the rate of uh, falling pro- – or the falling rate of profit, for example. So it's like, and I don't know if it's as simple as once you get enough people adopted to the blockchain technology, then that alone is just going to mitigate the power of the state, et cetera. I don't know about that. But one thing about the blockchain is that it is public and it is a way to have a secure, democratic, public ledger, basically, is kind of what it acts as. And again, I'm like you, I'm not 
to speed on the technology that well, but this is something that absolutely fascinates me, especially with this in mind, that there may be some sort of inherent function within the blockchain that could sort of break the monopoly of the state on issuing currency. Now, the problem becomes, like you said, you know, can the state capture that line of flight? Yes. Now they do have control over the internet infrastructure, because if you will recall, I don't know if you've paid attention to this, but in Canada, it was Ontario where they had the whole trucker strike situation. Mm -hmm. So what they were doing is kind of these people were raising money and they were doing it a lot of times through cryptocurrency. What happened is the state yet was still able to go in, presumably because they have access to the infrastructure and basically empty these people's cryptocurrency wallets or stores of value, yeah, et cetera. Right. Now, if we had our own infrastructure outside of this capitalist state, then I think that becomes a much more viable possibility for, you know, for a, some type of more egalitarian and democratic society, whatever form that could take. Well, that's one of the one of the potentials for cryptocurrency that I don't think we have we have enough information to really. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right now, it's like yeah, a but it's like a speculative asset Canadian, at this point. Yeah, your example of the Canadian government emptying those crypto wallets gives. I mean, Pister yeah. also <laughs> says, although she's agnostic, she she sort of doubts that the state apparatus will allow cryptocurrency to ex escape its clutches. Yeah, I agree. I think they'll... I had to put money on it, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll probably end up with state crypto, basically, yeah. just... And that way, all of our transactions and everything will be legible, and it'll eliminate... Well, probably won't fully eliminate, but it'll definitely push the uh, development of black markets to a different level, perhaps. And I do think that it's kind of interesting, and this gets to one of the one of the main features of this post-capitalist market is you talk about the asymmetry where on one side there is what you call the slope of the market, which I think is helpful to to it is. To, to visualize because I assume by slope of the market you're talking about the way in which capitalism axiomatically reaches this limit of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall and is perpetually kind of pushing it back, pushing back those limits in order to foster the accumulation, the right. private accumulation of wealth, of surplus. Slash value. and burn economics. So, so obviously that would have to change. This is part of the subordination that you're talking about with, with the legal codes, with legal axioms, which I think is important to go back to your, your point about Deleuze and Guattari's hostility to the abstract notion of human rights, because for Deleuze, it's always about these procedures of jurisprudence, right? So a case-by-case -case basis and not some sort of abstract universal overhanging everything. So a case-by-case -case basis where legal jurisprudence takes on a precedence over the main axiom of capitalism, which, you know, production for the market, but in terms of accumulation of surplus value. So that axiom would have to be subtracted. Yes, you would retain production for the market without the requirement that that production produce privately appropriable surplus value. And gotcha. when I talk about the slope of the market, what I'm trying to suggest is that, well, I say it's not an even playing field, but what mm -hmm. I'm trying to suggest is that capitalists are forced by competition right. to uh, strive to reduce costs, most labor costs, but all costs to a minimum, and to expand revenues as much as possible. So as to, to, by that difference, accumulate uh, surplus value. And that slope is created by two factors. One is competition among capitalists and by the primacy of finance capital. Many corporations have borrowed funds 
in order to expand and must pay back with interest what they've borrowed. So that slope is a feature of the capitalist market, which right. could be eliminated with a non, in my view, with a non-capitalist market. And uh, I mentioned in passing community banks and credit unions, but um, I think that even the Federal Reserve, if it had a, let's say, a climate sensitive axiom applied to it, could adjust the availability of capital for different kinds of investments in order to protect the environment. And in fact, this was squelched by Republicans, if I remember correctly. The idea that the Federal Reserve should take into account climate change was explicitly nixed by yeah. the political process, but it could be reversed by a different political process. Mm-hmm. And so you'd have a what is now a, a central banking institution reclaimed for uh, addressing the climate crisis. And Kim Stanley Robinson has a great chapter in his in his uh, sci-fi utopia, Ministry for the Future, where he talks about carbon quantitative easing, which would be the use of the Federal Reserve in order to divert, well, to, yeah, to divert capital away from fossil fuel, blah, 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 and funnel it toward enterprises, sectors of the economy that are saving the environment rather than destroying it. As my view of these things has evolved, I've seen more and more occasions for a state that responds to these issues of accountability and climate to curb and redirect the uh, capital, the director of capitalism. I mean, is that a kind of axiom in itself, kind of what you just described, right? To highlight, I think maybe this corresponds with your your argument about the slope of the market would be the axiom or the way that the market is sloped. And this is a top-down example of the top-down axiom would be like the producers decide, and you use this in the piece too, is to producers decide to offshore labor, right? That's not a decision that's made at the bottom, ultimately. Like that's a decision made at the top by capitalists right. to impose Definitely. that axiom on the labor market. So that, and that you can kind of see alone how that relationship alone contributes to that slope. I mean, this is an example that Deleuze and Guattari use in The Thousand Plateaus, that a corporation will outsource, will will place a a production facility overseas because labor markets are lower there. And what I do in the Duquesne paper is to give three examples of why a, a, a corporation would make a decision to repatriate a production that they had moved overseas. One of them is strictly that labor costs turn out to be not as low as they thought, so it's a strictly economic calculation. But on the other side of the coin, there's a, well, there's a technological axiom. Let's say robotics are now employed at home. So that's even cheaper than labor costs abroad. So that's a technological axiom that's shifted the profit calculation. All of this is based on profit calculations, which come down to the fundamental capitalist axiom, which is to appropriate, appropriate surplus value. The third example, though, is one where a state decides that it's going to tax overseas profits in order to encourage production facilities because it's responding to citizen pressure to create right. jobs. That was my, my example. And that's a legal axiom, right. which is going to adjust the profit calculation, but the but the the mechanism still relies on the primacy of the profit calculation of the market axiom to accumulate more surplus value. So there are all kinds of I mean carbon taxing, there are all kinds of procedures that try to fiddle with the market to make it more responsive to these problems. There you could also imagine legal axioms that would simply forbid corporations to invest overseas. I mean, that's not it's not inconceivable. It's called protectionism, but has a bad name. But that would be a different mechanism for achieving the same result of 
having better, more job prospects at home. Only it wouldn't change the slope of the market. Well, it would change the slope of the market in its own way. It wouldn't eliminate it, but it would change it because the slope of the market, it's not one plane, right? This is Riemannian, Riemannian space. So that a slope of overseas production is going to be different from the slope of production home and so forth. Each of these sub-markets, if you will, are going to have different slopes. That's one of the reasons why, well, that's one of the areas where the image of the slope of the market is somewhat misleading. But I do think it, it is still helpful in the sense in which if capitalism forms by the great conjugation of two unqualified flows, right? The deterritorialized flow of unqualified labor power and the right. and the decoded what the decoded flow of uh, of wealth accumulation, right? Of unqualified wealth. If, liquid in that wealth. Yeah. liquid wealth, yeah. In that conjugation, if that's sort of what capitalism forms and it's and it concresses at a historical moment based on perhaps other infrastructural possibilities, because they kind of suggest Perhaps capitalism is always sort of forming and disappearing in the void. You know, always the conditions of possibilities aren't yet right, even if historically those two conjugations could have happened elsewhere. In any case, one of the things are that what I like is that you uh, in your Duquesne paper, you point out that first, you know, you suggest there could be a new axiom that outlaws the sale of labor power itself, yeah. right? Which would be one side of the conjugation to be. Right repelled so it could be replaced with cooperative forms of production with their own set of axioms you said participatory decision making consensus pay scales which would replace right. private ownership of means of production with collective ownership and you stress it's that's different from state ownership so this is one of the enabling axioms but you also say that money could be used in a different way instead of it being for private wealth accumulation it could be for exchange on what you call like quote unquote, truly free, free markets, which right. are no longer free in the sense of free from state regulation. But in a sense, they would be free precisely because of being subordinate to these legal axioms, these enabling axioms, as you say, that would enable free activity, that would enable a way of escaping from the infinite debt that goes into forming the axiom of surplus value at any cost that underlie that's is a very rich comment that brings up a lot of things one of the things is that if you allow production for the market which is what my post axiomatic does allow you then have i think you have free activity being translated into labor and my anarchist side uh, and this is this is available even in a thousand plateaus not just in anti-oedipus wants to salvage free activity which is different from work. They have a very clear-cut distinction between free activity, which doesn't respond to a standard, and yeah. work, which does. And what remains murky for me is, even with the axioms of cooperative labor being very clear-cut, and I mentioned just two of them, as you mentioned, participatory decision-making, consensus, pay scales. I mean, the axioms of cooperative production are very well worked out. There are websites devoted to this. You can research it and find out what they are. And even if you've uh, eliminated the sale of labor power to a capitalist, I don't know how how cooperative production, to what degree does it standardize labor? Right. I think it definitely translates it out of the domain of free activity, but how much of a sacrifice is that? I don't know. 
And this is not because cooperatives don't exist and we don't know yet, because cooperatives exist all over the place. Mondragon in Spain is the most famous because of the largest scale example, but it's only one among umpteen. I just don't know of any work that has, has figured out what cooperative production for the market does to labor power as it's conceived in Marxian and perhaps other economics. It's a big question mark for me. It's interesting because because they're still under the axiomatic of you have to produce surplus value within the capitalist market. But yeah, what is that relationship when you drill down into the relationship? What is that like? Yeah, what are the kind of underlying tendencies there? Well, one thing is that you have collective appropriation of this of surplus value distributed according to the rules of the cooperative uh, in whatever way they've decided. But um, it still doesn't, it doesn't really, for me, uh, address the problem of the status of, of labor and what has, and the reading what is it's standardized and how it differs from what yeah. they call the activity. And, and I, this is maybe getting pretty far afield, but it's one of the, one of the big question marks that I don't, I don't have answers to. I wonder how, you know, what is the scaling capability of co-ops, et cetera? I'm sure somebody's looked at that. It's a very good question, and Montreal is one answer to it because it's it's a sort of a federation of cooperatives if you look at it closely enough. Gotcha. Which suggests that there are limits of scale, but the thing about retaining the market is that in a way it solves the problem of scale because you can have a cooperative of whatever size works, and the market is going to coordinate the process of getting goods from the hands of people who make them into the hands of people who use them. I think that the problem that you've left open is is a good one. You know, this question of standardization. And I have two different kind of almost opposing, maybe not contradictory views, but one is I obviously I, I think of, and this would fly in the face perhaps of pre-activity, but I can't help but think of Watery's practice and implementation of the grid in Laborde when he's kind of thinking of these rotating duties that yeah. try to de-hierarchize mm-hmm. the specialized field so that, you yeah. know, doc- doctors... Kind of its nurses, own axiom at work. Yeah, I mean, like, it, while it may limit unrestrained free activity in a certain sense, it helps to de-hierarchize. The professionals are also doing laundry one day while, you know, it's, it's collectivization of of desire as infrastructure, but this rotating schedule. But the other thing I think about, Nietzsche says somewhere, and I can't remember, where he talks kind of about how in his utopian ideal society, the labor would be performed in a way that matches with the sensitivity of one's souls, right? So he's thinking of like the most sensitive souls would not perform certain labors that would that would cause undue suffering while others who might perhaps schizoanalytically profit from mm-hmm. from working yes. with their hands or manually you know or whatnot and and I don't know if that's obviously a subjective criterion but it, and it's a utopian and ideal one but this one can imagine Nietzsche thinking a lot about suffering, not only with his own ailments, but he's reflecting on it in the history of philosophy with someone like Epicurus, where he's like, he's like, Epicurus finds the sunlight on the ocean so beautiful. What kind of suffering did he go through to, to take enjoyment from the scene? So he's thinking about suffering. And, and of course, that's, you know, we could say in a Buddhist way, part and parcel of existence. But there is this interesting idea about what in a new vein might be called surplus enjoyment, right? Because if we are talking about production or labor in terms of production, there is 
as we know, there is social production and desiring production, and they're one and the same, but different regimes, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that this is perhaps, maybe this is where anti-Oedipus can come back in and help us think about, at least speculatively, about this post-capitalist axiomatic, right? When we're, now we're we're thinking about um, desiring production on the, on that, that level, which is that level of the quanta that you describe in your uh, in your essay, right? Beneath the rigid and the supple segmentarity, there is always bubbling up desire. So yeah, I think it's interesting that you point out that this could be. I mean, it's it's more obvious in terms of consumption. What goods that you like to consume that give you pleasure? Yes. But also the pleasure of exerting energy mm-hmm. to produce something. There's a great utopia by Charles Fourier, a 19th uh, 18th mm-hmm. century French utopianist who imagined communities of I think exactly 2,936 people <laughs> because there would be a desire in one of those 2,936 people to do every job you needed to have done. Jack of all trades. There'd be no no suffering involved in work. It would be all pleasure. Of course, Fourier is responding in part to the the calculus that's been at the core of bourgeois political economy, which is that work is suffering and you have to compensate for it. So I think there's... there are ways of thinking about this which really go in a, a very different direction from the way it's usually conceived of. And presumably, cooperative production would enable those directions to be explored. I mentioned I, in my Nomad Citizenship book, the Orpheus Symphony Orchestra. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Ro- rotating jobs, like the one you just described, mm-hmm. um, where the musical director is chosen among the orchestra because this person really digs this piece of music and really has a has an interesting sense of it. And so that's the person who's going to direct the orchestra and so right. on. So I think, that, again, there are examples. This goes back to my claim that this is not utopian in the sense of far-fetched. These are concrete examples of how the work process can be rethought and re-institutionalized in ways that avoid hierarchy, avoid stagnation, avoid assigning someone one job in perpetuity. This is great. I, uh, I I'm glad you brought up brought up that example again. I know we talked about it a little bit last time, but it's good to remind ourselves that some of these types of these types these of lines solutions, of flight are out there. They're, yeah, they're in mean, the world. The seeds excellent. are there. We just gotta yeah. we just gotta water them and develop some more. <laughs> right. I know this is a, an earlier piece, but I do think that it's helpful to suggest that a lot of what we've been talking about in terms of say non-denumerable sets qualifying minorities in a specific way that, that resist the axioms or the axiomatic, that it corresponds to what you helpfully put forward as minor Marxism. When Deleuze says me and Guattari have always been Marxist, I think it's good to specify that the minor key in which their Marxism takes place. And, uh, and I think that that's why, for example, you know, even if they do in A Thousand Plateaus champion um, the proletariat as, as being sort of the, the universal subject in the minoritarian sense, right. they don't necessarily want to stick to the level of just class analysis, because to a certain extent, that is the macro political framework, whereas they are also concerned with masses, what they call masses, which is this micro-political minor level, which I think is always non-denumerable, is always of a minoritarian aspect. So I just wanted to maybe suggest as a way of sort of starting to conclude our discussion, because I think we've covered a lot, is do you want to say perhaps 
whether or not you are still in this trajectory of thinking through minor Marxism? I would say yes as a as a short answer, but yeah. um, why minor Marxism? Well, to yes. go back to the example, which I think is maybe, I don't know, kind of surprising, where they say that the model of all becomings is that of the proletariat. That's, that's a bad paraphrase, and it may be even wrong, but I think that's what you were getting at. Yeah. It's because of their conviction, and this can be challenged, that the standard that is most responsible for axiomatizing, capturing minorities, is the gold standard, so to speak, is capital. Now, there are no doubt other standards, male, white, and you knew, you enumerated them a, a few minutes ago. Yeah. Standards, but I think that they consider the proletariat to be, to the extent that they consider the proletariat to be the most universal becoming, it's because capital is the most pervasive standard which captures people's becomings. Is that true? To my eyes, right, a white heterosexual male, the standard of capital appears to be the one to target the most pervasive, the most general. I could be wrong, but I think that's that's the, their conviction too, as white heterosexual males, right, or white males anyway, that their conviction is that capital provides a standard that is most deleterious. And if you factor in climate change as a problem that we have to address, I don't think there's any question that capitalism contributes more to the climate crisis than any other standard among the many that are imposed. And I end the new version of my paper with um, with a quotation from Mike Davis, which comes at the end of his Old God's New Enigmas, I believe is the title. Or Yeah. He says that we must return to utopian thinking, but this is utopian thinking that is no longer just about what's practical or what's desirable, but what is necessary. And he puts a capital N on it. So to my mind, that's why a-Marxism is so important, because capitalism is the source of the most dramatic problem we are facing as a species. And it's a minor Marxism because there are other Marxisms that, for example, want to eliminate the market altogether because they feel that markets inevitably produce capitalism. That's a start of an answer. Maybe you can come back with more, with more detail about what about minor Marxism one of the things that I really liked is you brought out, I believe it is the second to last footnote in the apparatus of capture where they draw upon Mario Tronti, the Italian political philosopher, right. right, who defined the new conceptions of the mass worker and of the relation to work, quote, to struggle against capitalism, the working class must fight against itself insofar yeah. as it is capital. This is the maximal stage of contradiction, not for the workers, but for the capitalists. The plan of capital begins to run backwards, not as a social development, but as a revolutionary process. So I thought that that was interesting that, that the becoming implied by the working class would also... I mean, I think here it's very dialectical, but I don't think it's a bad thing for Deleuze and Guattari. Uh, it's, it would also have to fight itself as capital because there's a sense in which it would be easy if the working class, let's say, as a war machine, metamorphosis machine, could appropriate a state apparatus and that would solve the problem. And then the state could wither away or however you want to say it. But insofar as that might just keep stay on the plane of capital as they say and not necessarily as they call for smash capitalism right and fight against 
a socialist bureaucracy, et cetera, in order to forge this new axiomatic, these lines of flight. I think that's where struggling within the axioms is necessary, but there is this other side and we have to un- un- uproot the capitalists within us, the, uh, the fascists within us, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's crucial that the Tronti uh, footnote points to what the class does, what the proletariat does is to eliminate itself as a class. That's what, so the standard disappears with their triumph. It's not introducing a new standard. It's not to be um, reductive about it, putting women in charge instead of men, as beneficial as that might be. It's trying to undo the standard altogether. So that's, I think, maybe even a better way of characterizing the reason they say that the proletarian revolution is the model because it eliminates yes. itself as a sta- as a class, as a standard, which then, if it were to be realized, would return to a market as a, a nexus of differences without yeah. hierarchy. And so you have power with, without power over. And the pessimistic element, I guess, of my evolution away from a more anarchist reading of capitalism and schizophrenia towards this new one, which for which envisions a new axiomatic, is that the state form of thought is maintained. In other words, you have to define what the rights of nature are in legislation, as Panama has done recently, in order to subordinate the capitalist axiomatic to it. And I don't think we can count on the intersection of minorities, as productive as that might be, and we would hope it would be, I don't think we we could count on just the intersection of lines of flight to produce that kind of flip, which would subordinate the profit axiom to an axiom, for example, safeguarding the rights of nature, which is, I mean, talk about (laughs) jurisprudence. That's a bold bold step, right? People talk about animal rights and so forth, and but to have legislated them, legislated the rights of nature, as Panama has done or proposed to do, is really quite something. I don't know. That may be pretty far away from the question of minor Marxism, but I think you're right. Nope. To the Tronti quote, because we are eliminating a standard which they consider to be the most important standard to eliminate capital. Yeah. Yeah. Equivalent, making equivalent all labor power, so surplus can be extracted, and is trying to imagine forging legal axioms which would would constrain non-capitalist market behavior. Yeah. Safeguard the planet and other things, right? That's exactly right. And I also think that, you know, there is the sense in which just a this just came to me off the top of my head, but it, they look at axiomatics in other formations that aren't capitalist, specifically, at least primarily, where they, for example, they talk about axiomatics and fascism, which seemingly apparently multiplies and adds these axioms, but is in yeah. fact a kind of multiplication by subtraction. They kind of talk about totalitarianism as a as a minimal axiomatic. So there is a sense in which it's not an as as they say, don't believe that supple segmentarity is enough yeah. to save us, that right. the supple is somehow yes. better than the rigid. But also we shouldn't think that we could merely subtract axioms and thereby get out of the dilemma. Yeah. That's, that's that subtracting the axioms might be just as um suicidal as as the dangers of lines of flight or destratifying too quickly yes I mean, absolutely I, I mean for the in their view subtracting axioms leads to totalitarianism in the sense of arbitrary rule 
Yeah. If you subtract axioms, you get rid of laws that would constrain a ruler, and they just have carte blanche to do whatever they want. As opposed to fascism, which they read as a takeover of the state apparatus that used the state apparatus to control the populace and to and to maintain their power. So I think that's yeah. I never believe that uh, uh, a, a little suppleness will save us or something like that. Something like that. Yeah. That's yeah. And, and the same thing. Uh, they say something similar in another terms when they talk about the relationship between nomad science and royal science. It's not as if royal science is bad, but it has its disadvantages Yes, and needs to be always paired with a better appreciation of nomad science or problematics. Yeah. And in my view, this is that problematics is what poses problems to royal science. Yes. And we've got to make sure that the right problems are being posed, yep. because now the problems posed by royal science and royal technology are mostly how can we reduce labor costs, use robotics and make right. How can we better, uh, you know, exploit natural resources and so forth and so on? Whereas a the abstract machine of royal science could be used for to address other problems. So I think there again, away from the fleshing out the view of axiomatics that was presented initially in Anti-Oedipus with a fuller understanding of where axiomatics work in other domains than the economy alone is a really important contribution of the second volume. Royal science is an axiomatic because basic science, as it's called, produces knowledge that can be realized in any number of technologies. That's what's key about, that's what I think the advantage of, of considering royal science to be an axiomatic. The problem is, if you will, what technology to uh, invent and what end, what end it serves. Yes. And it's got to serve an end that's not profit-driven, profit yeah. basically. Exactly. I think that that's the, the key is subtracting the, the key axioms and not just wildly subtracting, right. so subtracting the the key axiom of private wealth accumulation, that can then allow for a calculus of problems not devoted to the the profit motive to flourish. So I think that that's part of your focus, you know, on on this new axiomatic as being um, as being very plausible and very and very enlightening. I mean, I do I do think that for Deleuze and Guattari, this notion without that statement at the end, that you know, perhaps a new axiomatic could arise out of the struggle over the axioms. That kind of makes a lot of sense because without that statement, one might think that that axiomatics in general needs to be shelved. But yeah. I think that this is the same thing that they would say about you know, with deterritorialization, reterritorialization, they come together as as a kind of a pair. I do think, though, that you've kind of shown how with keeping markets, you keep the decoding that is the creative semiotic process that they right. they find admirable in schizophrenia, although they mm-hmm. kind of drop that yeah. the terms of schizophrenia and paranoia in uh, in volume two. But in any case, a lot of food for thought. And uh, I think we, we've had a I think that it's been a very <laughs> productive discussion. Coop, I, I, I will send it off to you if you have anything else you'd like to bring up otherwise you're looking punched out and eugene he's still his chin is still looking good i'm just gonna let him i'm gonna let him go about his day (laughs) i'm not i'm not punched out i'm just i just feel like uh, we've covered a lot of ground and i don't want to necessarily be redundant but i do eugene maybe want to give you the chance to say a little bit more about your not just perversion of the market which is 
hopefully, as you said, coming out this year from SUNY Press, but your planned volume of essays. Just maybe just tell us a little bit about what you're working on in that vein, and we can uh, we can conclude. Well, okay. Thank you. That's a nice opportunity. I um, I do think that there's a lot of synergy among the essays I've published over the years. And so I do want to collect them together. I will add this, the Duquesne paper that we've referred to here as an essay to one of the sections, but I'm going to collect the essays that have appeared uh, over the years in books or in journals um, and try to sort them according to categories like ones that are primarily addressed to psychoanalysis, ones that are primarily addressed to economics, ones that are primarily addressed, addressed to, to music maybe, yeah. uh, ones that are primarily addressed to politics, and to gather together in one place the works that haven't appeared in book form, because it seems to me they add up in a way that, that would make this worthwhile. That's what I'm trying to do now. I mean, it's still, I think, going to be to revolve around this overall project, which I consider, I guess, to be my, my through line, which is distinguishing capitalist markets from non-capitalist markets both pre-capitalist markets and post-capitalist markets. So that will be probably the way when I write an introduction to this collection, I will try to pick out how each of the essays contributes to this to this overall project. But the other thing, I think this is something you suggested, Taylor, would be to try to suggest how my own thinking has changed, like they have moved from an anti-Oedipus stance, which is where I started, to uh, a stance that's much more thoroughly informed by a thousand plateaus by the second and by and by what is philosophy. So that's um, that's on the horizon. Obviously, standing reserve, you know, invitation for coming back. Whenever your your book drops, I think would be a good time to have you back. So perhaps Great. perhaps yes. in the fall or in the winter, we'd love to have you back because once a year won't be enough for us. It's just <laughs> it's, it's always productive and, and enjoyable to, to have you on. And, uh, you know, I hope that some of what we do here feels kind of like you mentioned earlier, a discussion after um, the conference paper you gave at Duquesne. I hope that it feels kind of like that that kind of feeling where you get to talk about these ideas openly and, and informally. Yeah, it's great for me, particularly because I no longer get this in graduate seminars because, I mean, I don't teach anymore. I've retired. So this is a great yeah. chance to explore the outer edges of these things based on uh, things that uh, that are in print. But I do appreciate the opportunity, and I would very much look forward to coming back once this book drops. And maybe once I have yeah. a better sense of how this uh, this collection of essays is organized, we'll talk about that and maybe get some more ideas from you guys about yeah. um, what, would be, what would be helpful. What we didn't touch on, I think, is especially I think in the conference version of the paper was like how much informed by Freud some of this is, which I thought was yeah. just some really great insights into Freud. And like, you really crystallized some of the concepts so well there. I just wanted to flag that as something I enjoyed quite a bit in, in the conference edition of the paper, but yeah, I actually, <laughs> actually was swipe, cite books by Freud. I mean, this is one of the this things is why I gave Freud a shout out because yeah. just like <laughs> absolutely mobilized it so well. I was like, Oh, this is, so well, good. like like much of their work, anti-Oedipus is not anti-Freud by any means. Yes. And minor Marxism is not anti-Marxism by any means. Right. And dot, yes. dot, 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 dot. I mean, <laughs> they're not against world science. They're not against law. I don't think they're against <laughs> rights. There are any number of things that you could say. And this is, again, why I think Thousand Plateaus is so helpful. What appeared to be a kind of elevation of one pole of a binary over another is much harder to sustain after having read Thousand Plateaus. And I think that's yeah. one of the reasons they felt they needed to get some stuff out that maybe Aunt Oedipus was unclear or mis even misleading about. 
So yeah, yeah. shout out to Freud. <laughs> shout, out, shout out to Freud. Well, uh, uh, oh, real quick, real quick, Eugene, I wanted to ask you to repeat what was the name of the blockchain book that you referenced? It was by a wom- a woman oh, author, yes. I believe. Yes, a very important book, Katharina Pistor, P-I-S-T-O-R, The Code of Capital, appeared, I believe, from Princeton University Press in 2019. Okay. And her next to last chapter, if not her last chapter, departs from what she's focused on up until then, which is the way the legal apparatus has been used to, in her view, in her terms, recode, but in my view, reactimatize capital. In other words, what she shows is that every step of the way, the legal apparatus has been used to enable capital to capture this or that. So for example, the Europeans come to uh, a, a new world and they declare this land to be unoccupied because the people aren't political and because they aren't productive enough. And so they claim rights to this land and they're off and running. And in the same way, capital has claimed rights these days to DNA sequences. What mm-hmm. the legal apparatus that's involved with that is extraordinary. And you think of the legal apparatus behind derivatives on the yep. financial markets or all kinds of anyway, she has a whole set of examples. And then in the last or next to last chapter, she shows she says, and on the horizon is a completely new way of coding value, not state-centric, not legal centric, but digital. And she's talking about cryptocurrencies. She's, as I say, largely agnostic about how this is going to turn out. But the yep. book is called The Code of Capital. And very important for recognizing some Marxisms tend to think of the of the law as simply superstructural and determined by the economic. Well, there are some simplistic views of that relationship that this book blows completely out of the water. Interesting. Because, Good to know. Uh, because she shows, as does Paul Patton in the in the chapter of his in in Deleuze and the Political on Colonization, they both show that the legal apparatus has been an enabling condition for capitalism to operate. And I don't think Marx would have any have any trouble with this view. But as I say, there is there are some versions of Mar- of Marxism which have not I don't think been willing to recognize how important the law has been to the emergence and and longevity of capitalism. Even in A Thousand Plateaus, as you point out, they relegate their points about the legal enabling aspects of the law. Citizens United is a good Uh, example of this. And, you know, that's the biggest thing I can think of in the U.S. recently. Yeah, you're right, Coop. And they relegate their that to footnotes in terms of what what the legal apparatus yeah. has, has done to enable capitalism. So can we go back to what Cooper just said? Because I yes. didn't hear it. You were, did you say oh, Citizens I, United? Yeah, I just brought up Citizens United decision as, relative as, as to a, politics and money as an example of how this yes. gets expressed in the. And so I uh, just want to say again, Eugene, always a pleasure to have you on. And I'm so glad that you enjoy getting to, to talk to us as though we were you know, a part, a part of your, we're a part yeah, of your grad you seminar. Uh, and so we definitely, the minor to, seminar. <laughs> yeah. The minor seminar. We definitely want to keep, keep in touch and uh, hopefully yeah. we'll be, be speaking to you. Um, you know, uh, uh, I'll probably be talking to you sometime uh, late summer and, and just, just uh, definitely want to have you back and uh, keep talking about these things. Thank you very much, guys. I appreciate it. All right. We're going to let you go. Have a great Sunday. Thank you. You too. Thanks, Eugene. Enjoy your weekend. Thank you. And once again, thanks to Eugene Holland for joining Taylor and I on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. Cheers. The very roots of evil, of negativity and singularity.
including the ultimate form of security, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you.